I want to talk about the cry and the comfort of the oppressed from Psalm 10. I prepped this message uh, while I was sitting uh, in the humanitarian aid room uh, in the church in Warsaw. So this is really maybe more a message for those I was just with, uh, but I know uh, that the Lord has lessons for us to learn from what they're going through. I also know that there are members of our own church who have experienced abuse, have been oppressed, have experienced the injustices of this fallen world. And so this message is for those who have been or are oppressed, Psalm chapter 10. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boast of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see this. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it, but you have seen it. For you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. When we look at this psalm, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is there's four statements, direct quotes of the violent oppressor. The Lord is revealing by inspiration what the inner thoughts are of vile and wicked and evil oppressors. The first thought is in verse 4, there is no God. Verse 4 says that the wicked oppressor in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek God and all his thoughts are there is no God. He just goes around thinking to himself, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God, therefore I can do whatever I want, whatever is advantageous to me. I can't help but think of Vladimir Putin when I read that verse. He spent his early career as a KGB operative to hold the position he had. He had to be a communist who affirmed the atheistic ideology. And so he has spent his life 
telling himself there is no God. Then verse 6 says that the wicked oppressors have another thought. Quote, I will not be moved. In other words, no one is powerful enough to move me. Throughout all generations, that is, they think into eternity, I will not be in adversity. In other words, they think, I've become so powerful, no one can stop me and no one can judge me. I'm a law unto myself. This is certainly true of Putin who has systematically gained complete power in Russia over his own people and now over others. Then verse 11, the wicked oppressor says, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Now notice the contrast with the verse 4. In verse 4 it says, all his thoughts are there is no God. But now he's saying, now wait a minute. If there is a God... He's trying to convince himself there's no God. Now, of course, the scriptures say that everyone knows that God exists, Romans 1. Since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that men are without excuse. And it says, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. So the the wicked tell themselves, there's no God, there's no God, there's no God. Then they tell themselves, you know, I have the power, no one can move me. But then the third thing they say is, well, even if there is a God, he's far away, he doesn't notice, nor does he care. And then the fourth thought of the wicked in verse 13, the wicked say, to God, you will not require it. In other words, there will be no consequences for my action. Even if there is a God, even if he sees what I'm doing, I won't be punished for it. There's no judgment to be worried about. I think you can see as I've observed Putin's moral downward spiral over the last 20 years or so, I think you see him moving through these phases of degradation. There is no God. I'm unmovable. God has forgotten and I won't be judged. So Psalm 10 informs us of the inner thinking of the oppressor. This is true of oppressors past, present, and future. But the real focus of the psalm, I think, is on not the oppressor, but the oppressed. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? I want to talk with you about the cry of the oppressed. The first cry of the oppressed is in verse 1. How long? How long, Lord? Why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why do you seem so far away when things are hard? This is the cry of the oppressed. We're gathered here in peace and safety, but right now there are believers in Jesus Christ, our spiritual relatives, our family in Christ who are huddled in cold, damp, and dark concrete basements with explosions and machine guns and all sorts of crimes being committed around them. We brewed coffee this morning in the Fellowship Center. While we were brewing coffee, they were boiling water that they collected out of gutters and out of cut pipes, the heating pipes that they use. They cut them and drain the water out to drink. We're sitting here with our families next to us while tens of thousands of families have had to say goodbye. We've heard the beautiful sounds of worship, but right now there are children who are hearing much different sounds, the sounds of air raid sirens, explosions, machine guns. 
screams, and crying. There's a lot of evil in the world and a lot of suffering. In fact, what's happening in Ukraine is, shocking as it is, is only a small portion of the total evil and oppression and suffering that's occurring in the world. And a lot of that is not that far away. Probably today, as we've met here, there's been a baby ripped from its mother's womb within just a couple miles of where we sit. I'm sure somewhere, even in our city, there's been an abusive man who has beaten his wife or his children today. All over the world, the strong and the powerless oppress the weak and the powerless. And so even as I speak here, the lament of the psalmist is echoing in millions of hearts all over the world. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Perhaps that's the cry of your heart this morning. Maybe you're processing oppression which you've endured or abuse which you've endured. If that's the case, I want to assure you that it's okay to ask the question. It's okay to ask this question. Why do you seem so far away in times of trouble? But when we ask the question, we have to ask it sincerely. It's okay to ask the question as long as you're willing to hear the answer. The Lord wants you to ask, but then he wants you to listen as he gives an answer. In the Bible, the lament of hurting hearts is never judged, never dismissed, never minimized, and never condemned. In fact, there are dozens of psalms whose primary theme is lament. And there's even a whole book of the Bible which is named Lamentations. Lament is included in God's inspired word because our heavenly father knows that suffering is the reality of the fallen world in which we live. And he wants us to cry out to him as to our Abba Father when we're hurting, when we're confused, when we're grieving, when we are in shock from the evils that we see around us. So again, it's not wrong to ask the question. But when you ask the question, you need to be willing to hear the Lord's answer. So if verse one is the echo of the cry of your heart, ask it, ask it, but then listen. In Psalm 10, for example, we see the cry of the oppressed in verses one through 11, but then we're gonna see the comfort of the oppressed in verses 12 through 18. Real questions have real answers. These are real questions, but there are real answers for those real questions. So lament, cry, ask, but then listen, receive, and believe, and be comforted. The first cry of the oppressed is, why does God seem far away in times of trouble? The second cry of the oppressed is, Lord, why do you let the wicked prosper? In verses two through six, the prosperity of the wicked is described. In fact, in verse five, it says about the wicked man, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. He prospers. So the oppressed cry out, Lord, why do you let the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer while the wicked prosper? By the way, there's no one in Ukraine who believes the prosperity gospel anymore. Nobody. Because it's exactly the opposite right now. The wicked prosper while the righteous suffer. 
And think about the description of verses 2 through 6 of the oppressors. They are proud, verse 2. They are violent. They are cunning. They are greedy. They are vulgar. They are haughty. And they are godless. That's verses 2 through 4. And yet, verse 5 says that it is this person who prospers at all times. How can it be? How can God let it be that way? How can God let Putin sit in a palace while children his bombs have orphaned are held in the arms of strangers who found them wandering in ruins? How can Kim Jong-un feast on caviar while Christians starve in his gulags? How can the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? This is the cry of the oppressed. And it's one that's repeatedly asked in the pages of Scripture. Psalm 73, for example, Asaph, who observed this, calls out saying, God, how can this be? He says that his feet came close to stumbling. His steps had almost slipped. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They're not in trouble like other men, nor are they plagued like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness, from the overabundance they have. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high in their high positions. They've set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. And... They say, how does God even know? Is there even knowledge of this with the Most High? And Asaph says in verse 13, surely in vain, I've kept my heart pure, I've washed my hands in innocence, I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Here, I've sought the path of righteousness and I'm stricken and chastened and downcast and oppressed and here the wicked are prospering. How can it be? Verse 15, he says, if I had said, I'll speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He was close to switching sides because of this. Verse 16, he says, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. That's the reality. I tried to understand it, Asaph says, and it troubled me. Then listen to verse 17. It was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. And the rest of Psalm 73 contrasts the final destination of the wicked with the final destination of the righteous. What's the final destination of the wicked? He says in verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places. They seem to be so high and mighty and powerful and prosperous, but they are standing on ice, and that ice is looming over the precipice of hell. You set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. That's the destination of the wicked. What about the righteous? Verse 25. Verse 23, I'm sorry. I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. 
But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The reality is that we live in a fallen world. And in this fallen world, a world which the New Testament says is ruled by the prince of the power of the air. It says the New Testament calls Satan the God of this world. And so in his kingdom, his kingdom of darkness, the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. But there is a kingdom to come in which that will be absolutely reversed and forever reversed. The wicked prosper, but it is only for a time. But the oppressed, understandably, cry out, Lord, why do you let the wicked prosper? There's a third cry of the oppressed. Why, why don't you judge them? Why don't you judge our oppressors? Verses 7 through 11 talk about how the oppressors just mock and say, God doesn't see. He won't hold me to account. Lord, why don't you judge our oppressors? This is a question which has been asked throughout biblical history. Israel asked it during their slavery in Egypt. They asked it again during the Babylonian exile. I'm sure it was asked by the New Testament era saints as they endured the persecutions of Nero and Diocletian. And we know from the pages of scripture that this question will be asked again in the end times by the martyrs in heaven. In Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through 11, the martyrs cry out saying, How long, O Lord, until you judge the world and avenge our blood? Why don't you judge these wicked oppressors? People who run over Christians with bulldozers like Kim Jong-un did a couple years ago. Why don't you judge them? Why don't you stop them? Even the martyrs in heaven ask that question and then the answer is given. Wait a little while until the full number of the martyrs has come in. And then, of course, in Revelation, we see that the time comes when the king will ride with the host of heaven. But it is understandable that in this fallen world, with all of this suffering, the oppressed cry out, and we hear their cries in the pages of Scripture. But now we move to verses 12 through 18, where we're going to see the comfort of the oppressed. The psalmist has asked the hard questions now we're going to hear the Lord's answers. Our first question was, why does God seem so far away in times of trouble? And as our Abba Father answers that question in verses 12 through 18, we're going to see the first comfort of the oppressed. The first comfort of the oppressed is that the Lord is not far away. In fact, he is near to the brokenhearted. I want you to notice in verses 12 through 18 how the Father answers the cries of the oppressed and comforts them with great and precious promises. He promises in verse 12 that he will not forget the afflicted. In verse 14, that he will receive those who commit themselves to him. He says in verse 14 that he's the one who helps the orphan. He's the one in verse 17 who hears the heart cries of the humble. He's also the one in verse 17 who strengthens the hearts of the afflicted and the oppressed. Verse 17 says he inclines his ear. He leans near to the afflicted and to the oppressed to hear us and to answer our prayers. And verse 18 says that he will vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. Psalm 34, I think, summarizes this first comfort well. <coughs> Psalm chapter 34, verses 15 through 19. The eyes of the Lord toward the righteous. If you feel God is far away, hear the word of the Lord. 
The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. He hasn't forgotten. He sees. His eyes are toward you. His ears are open to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near, near to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord is near. That's the first comfort of the oppressed. Second comfort is this. The Lord is patient with the wicked, but he is not permissive with them. The day will come, verse 12 says, when the Lord will arise and lift up his hand of judgment. Right now the wicked prosper. Right now the wicked exert their will, but there is coming a time when the king will ride and with him comes the armies of heaven and his hand will pick up the rod of judgment and all that is wrong will be made right. That is the comfort of the oppressed. Verse 14 says that the Lord sees and records every violation of justice. The oppressor says, God doesn't see. He doesn't take it into account. I'm going to get away with it. And verse 14 says, they're wrong. They are wrong. Verse 14 says, you have seen it. You've beheld mischief and vexation in order to take it into your hand. Records are being kept for the day of judgment. The Lord's infinite power, verse 15 says, will break the finite power of the wicked. And verse 15 ends by telling us that no one will escape the justice of the Lord. He will seek out wickedness until it is all dealt with. Till there's no wickedness left to deal with. The Lord is patient with the wicked but not permissive. What do I mean by that, patient but not permissive? I think it's described best in 2 Peter chapter 3. Where Peter is wrestling with this. Remember, Peter is writing to persecuted people. The early church endured horrific things. Burned as torches in Nero's gardens, for example. Can you imagine being taken covered with pitch and strapped to a pole, nailed to a pole, and then lit a fire to serve as a torch? How does Peter deal with that? Well, he says this. Verse 3, know this first of all, in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where's the promise of his coming? Everything just is going to go on just like it is. But he says, you know what? Verse 7, by God's command, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Well, if that's the case, if judgment is coming, then why does God delay that judgment? Why does he let so much of this go on? Why doesn't judgment come now? Why doesn't he put a stop to it now? The answer is given in verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness. Why is he withholding his hand of judgment? The answer is given. He is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's giving the wicked time to repent. He doesn't desire their death or their destruction. He desires their repentance. And so he's patient with them. 
but we should never think that his patience equals permission. He is patient, but not permissive. The third comfort of the oppressed is this. The Lord, in his good timing, will put an end to every evil forever. Look back at Psalm 10, verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. Why does the psalmist remind us that nations have perished from the Lord's promised land? Because he's saying, look, just like the Lord dealt with Egypt, just like he dealt with the Canaanites, he will deal with the wicked of our time and future times. The fate of the oppressors of the present will be the same as the fate of the oppressors of the past. Then verse 18 says, there will come a day when the Lord will vindicate the orphan and the afflicted. Those who are weak and powerless, those who are being oppressed, they seem like they're on the wrong side, the weak side, the losing side, but really the God of armies is with them. And there will come a day in which everything will be made right. He will vindicate the orphan and the afflicted. He will show that they, the ones who were considered weak on earth, were really the ones who were strong because the Lord of hosts was with them. And there will come a day, the psalm ends with this phrase, that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. This is a prophetic reference to the coming Antichrist. And the Lord will put a final end to the final oppressor forever. (coughs) So what is our hope? Our hope is Revelation 21. He'll wipe away every tear. There will be no mourning, no more suffering, tears, crying, or pain, or death. Old things will pass away. All will be made new. And justice will be done. That is the hope of the oppressed. Our hope is in Christ and in his gospel. He is the hope of the world. Let's give him thanks. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. It is truly good news. Lord, the hope of eternal life and of your coming kingdom where righteousness will rule and reign because you are righteous and you will reign. Lord, we say with the suffering of all the ages come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come. Maranatha, we wait. Come quickly, O Lord.